Thank you both so much for joining us today. Both of you had cautioned in the days leading up to that vigil that we saw to, uh, you, you were telling people to be really careful about which events you choose to go to because of security issues and not knowing who was planning this. Uh, Professor Strickland, can you tell us why that was such a concern? Well, I can give a classic example. Uh, a few different media outlets had referred to a march planned by the Black Lives Matter chapter in Boise. There is no Black Lives Matter chapter in Boise. Some of the leaders who are friends of mine have attempted to start one and it requires a lot of things that they weren't ready to put together yet. There is a Facebook page and it has been run by a few different people over the years and the individual on the page now is someone that neither me or other established leaders in the black community, as well as a variety of leaders in the overall civil rights community here in Boise, Idaho had never heard of. So imagine going to an event, there's no safety plan, who's in charge of communication, uh, what happens if someone does something, are certain things allowed, whether it's weapons or not, what are the rules, who's going where and doing what. So I was trying to tell people just because you see something on the internet doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. and effectively to organize a march all you need is a facebook and an instagram and uh, a bunch of bad actors could get together and do something dangerous well and and we've certainly seen a lot of organizing from especially young people via snapchat and other social media that perhaps older people don't use quite as much uh, council member sanchez i wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on protests and and being careful about which ones people attend to choose, uh, choose to attend. Yeah, um, you know, I myself, I, I have a history in participating in actions at the State House. I was arrested in 2014 uh, with several other individuals in support of Add the Four Words. But I was invited by a friend of mine to participate in those actions. And so I knew the people involved. And I think it's important. It's important, especially, you know, people have high emotions about these issues, but it's really not about you, the individual. It's about the cause. And are you showing up in support of the cause or are you showing up without the proper information, without vetting who is putting on the event? And are you gonna be a part of something that's gonna be damaging to the cause? That said, we have seen so much emotion and energy from these young folks who are showing up, um, black people, people of color, and white people. I was at two of these protests and I was easily one of the oldest people there by at least 15 years. I mean, a lot of teenagers. So what is their role in this kind of activism when they want to get out there and they want to march and they want their voices heard? I can respond to that if you'd like. Yeah, Go please, ahead. Professor. Uh, well, if we start with marching, you know, Boise State University has a Martin Luther King march every year, uh, as well as University of Idaho, as well as Idaho State University. So I encourage young people to get involved in established marches with organizations such as Boise State. Uh, there are things, of course, to do other than marching. Marches are exciting and energizing, and I understand why they appeal to young people. Uh, here in Boise, we have the NAACP, we have the ACLU, uh, we have the Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence, and they have lots of opportunities, not only to get out there and pump your fists, but to help out, to work with people, to advocate for underrepresented populations, to help with fundraising. 
Uh, I recently started an Idaho Human Rights Collective. And what we'll be doing is uh, working and affiliating with a lot of those organizations in order to enhance uh, specific initiatives. So one of the things I would say to young people is there are marches every year. Uh, I guess the Martin Luther King March in Boise this coming year should be filled to the brim, right? Let's not wait for murder, okay? That's my message. Don't wait for murder. Uh, there's also the Idaho Black History Museum. We've had events there where very few people come. Show up now, okay? Council Member Sanchez, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What is the role for young people who don't necessarily have the connections or the interest in deferring to established leaders in the community? You know, I, you know, you and I had a conversation offline yesterday, Melissa, where I talked a little bit about how how I came to be become an activist. And for me, it began in college, actually. I was 18 years old when I came to Boise State University. And in fact, it was Martin Luther King Day. It was the planning of that event and learning about the cause and learning about the history. But prior to that, you know, I grew up in Burley, Idaho and not a lot of activism happening in Burley, Idaho, except that it was, and it was on a very personal way, it went on a very personal level. So I had Latinas, I had Mexican-American women who were in my life through my workplace. I worked at a clothing store called The Farm Store. And my boss was 10 years older than me, Rachel Castro Hernandez. And uh, my colleague, Patty Reyes, who was five years older than me, they were my mentors. And they, they showed me the tools that I needed to be to be a good person, to be a good citizen. And, uh, and that's what we need. We need individuals to step forward and help mentor and guide people who are five to 10 years younger than them. Because as you said, the older we get, the, the harder it is to make that connection. Um, and so that's what we need. We need to bridge those, uh, those generations so that they can guide these young people. Because it, like Professor Strickland said, the march is one thing, but that's not where the real work happens. And we need, we actually need these young people to get involved to make a long-term commitment to social justice. And let's talk about that work that needs to be done, Councilmember Sanchez. It's not just about showing up to vigils or blacking out your social media profile to show solidarity. There is more work to be done by individuals and society. Exactly. You know, Melissa, I spend a lot of time on social media, and so um, it's a wonderful tool, uh, but it's only one tool. There's so many other resources that we can be using to educate ourselves. Uh, other people who are willing to teach us. Um, we also have the Boise Public Library. Go get your library card and get books. I actually just spoke with um, a staff member at uh, the Boise Public Library who said that they have got a huge number of people putting books on hold. And so I just want to give a gold star to all the Boiseans who have heeded our call to start educating themselves. Um, and you know what? I, I sometimes see on social media that people shy away from movies and documentaries that have to do with issues of racism, police brutality, white supremacy, because they're uncomfortable. Well, that's why you need to watch them, because you're just going to watch. There are people who experience that every day. And the least we can do is not turn away uh, from other people's pain. It's how we start to develop empathy and compassion. I do wish that some of the white young people who I saw with guns and using the American flag to intimidate people of color, um, I wish they would do that and learn that it, this is not a trend. This is not a fun activity. Um, it, is, it is fear that they are instilling in their fellow people of color who live in Boise.
Yes, and on that note, uh, tragic as it was, awful as it was, horrific as it was, the murder of George Floyd is in fact a symptom. I'm asking myself why he was killed. Uh, why weren't the other officers involved? Why did they feel the either the need to uh, not do anything or the, the lack of training? And it comes down to more fundamental systemic issues. Uh, long-term discrimination against people of color in jobs, in housing, in education, the school-to-prison pipeline, mass incarceration, inequities in healthcare, things of that nature, which are fundamental that need to be addressed, uh, not just retraining police officers, but looking at our communities. And one of the things I ask myself, the most fundamental question of all is why did George feel a need to walk in with a fake 20? Uh, where were we, we being the community, you know, could somebody have grabbed him by the arm and said, Hey, bad idea leaders, uh, support. Is there, uh, more redirection of resources toward things like perhaps it was a drug related situation, uh, perhaps less emphasis on this militarization of police. And I think about those fundamental causes and overall things like we're doing now, like communication in the community. And just another tragic thought in the form of a question, uh, it was a fake $20 bill for crying out loud, right? Uh, did that need a police response? Um, interesting thought, right? Fake 20, did that need a police response? Can you simply not accept it? Should we be redirecting resources away from this militarized policing and more toward things like uh, Councilwoman Sanchez is talking about, fundamental change, bringing our community together to help each other and stop this war zone mentality. And that's so interesting that you bring that up because we're talking about just one piece of so many issues that affect black people and people of color. It's not just, as you said, uh, police tactics, but there are also prison issues. There's, there are also education issues and socioeconomic issues. So what's next? And I, I, I guess I'd ask that to you, Professor Strickland, when you have so many systemic and societal issues that compound upon each other, what's next? Okay, well, I'm one of those people who uh, sees the light, I'm fundamentally an optimist, and having been involved in civil rights-related issues for decades, I do see the progress that was made. Uh, for example, my daughter, who is 16 years old, 16 years old, has already started Northwest Nazarene University. So there's an example of progress. Uh, years ago, something like that would have been heard of. So what's next, I see, is keep the fire burning in the dialogue. What happens, unfortunately, is there's a George Floyd type event. There are rallies. There is energy. There is anger. And within a month or two, it's as if it never happened. What's next is change, organizing, getting together, and uh, more coalescing of all parts of the community. For me, uh, my particular initiatives have to do with content creation, uh, more workshops on things like diversity and uh, basically community organizing. Um, I'll be doing that through Boise State and uh, through my organization. And really keeping that specific fire burning, we had something like 5,000 people uh, on the steps of the Capitol, peacefully having a vigil, not protesting, <laughs> not fighting, but having a vigil 
to honor black lives in Boise, Idaho. It's like, wow, let that sink in. There are people who are concerned. There are people who want the change and they're willing to get together, show their faces and speak up. So harnessing that energy into the initiatives that are already there. And I've, I've mentioned several of those initiatives, they're there. And uh, as Councilwoman Sanchez said, we need to, to reach out more to young people to get them involved. And uh, frankly, in the boring stuff, because that's where most of the work happens. Councilmember Sanchez, I, I'm curious your thoughts as somebody who is an elected official. Uh, what role does government play in this type of systemic change? Well, I think it actually begins within that system itself. Um, I, I recently pointed out to my colleagues and Mayor McLean how this is the second time that there's been a racial incident in the Treasure Valley related to the Treasure Valley, where we are affected by it in, in one form or another. The first time was uh, Middleton, when we had the teachers dressing up as quote unquote Mexicans, making fun of the wall, and then this time uh, with uh, the, the the murder, the unjust murder of Mr. Floyd, and. I was the individual. I was uh, the community leader that folks reached out to. And, uh, and I brought it to their attention. I said, I'm not the mayor. I'm not the council pro tem. I'm not the council president. What I am is the Mexican American woman who's on the Boise City Council. And it's not just my immediate friends who reached out to me, it was the entire community. And it wasn't just the people in the city of Boise. Uh, it was people from all over. And uh, that that work, it needs to be shared that we need to get to the point where any individual in our community would feel that they could call Mayor McLean or uh, Council President Clegg or Council Pro Tem Woodings, or there needs to be a move to make sure that a council member Sanchez becomes Council Pro Tem, becomes Council President, maybe mayor someday, because apparently people like us have exceptional leadership qualities that are recognized by the community. And now we need our colleagues to recognize recognize it as well. You bring yeah, up an interesting. Oh, please, Professor. There's some real validity to what Lisa Sanchez is saying. Uh, it's not an ego-based thing. She's referring to putting herself out front for representation, to show representation, to show inclusion, to say this is an open door. And it's ironic, once again, that it took not just a murder, but a police murder, not just a police murder, but one that was caught on video in the most descriptive fashion for the phones to start flooding toward Lisa Sanchez. So what she's basically saying is, why don't we open those phones like every day anyway toward people of color or leaders of color like herself? Here's a simple thought. Wouldn't it be great if 5,000 people got together without a horrific murder to talk about these issues of inclusion? Right? So that's where that comes from. And by the way, I do know that um, based on leaders in my life, when you see people like you in certain positions, people who look like you from your community gives you that confidence to say, oh, I can do that too. But uh, what she said is classic. Um, those phones should have been flooding toward her anyway. So let's formalize it more. Let's say uh, more people of color in leadership positions, because I'm getting the same thing. I am absolutely, my phone, email, text, it's just off the hook. What can we do? What can we do? I raised $1,500 yesterday alone, just on a, a basic fundraiser, starting with Facebook, uh, people wanting to contribute to the initiative, my content-based initiative. And uh, wow, I wish we could do that 
Or why don't we say next time, let's do it before someone gets killed. Let's say we have a problem. Let's admit we have a problem. The energy's there. The people want it. Let's formalize, get some foundation and uh, the wind at our back behind the movement. You know, and Professor, Strick Professor oh, Strickland, I just, I just wanted to say, um, uh, I really appreciate you echoing and amplifying what I said, um, because you're right. I think at first glance, it appears to be ego-based to be saying that. But the problem is that people like us, we are not handed leadership roles. We have to scrape and fight and kick and point to our work as actual work. Um, I would say people of color like Professor Strickland and myself, we qualify as essential workers um, because the people who contacted me over the weekend and over the past week were not people of color. They were all white people. They're all white people who care. And when they sized up the city council and city hall, they decided that I was the expert that they should contact. But the thing is I'm capable of doing more than working on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that's what is called upon as a city council member. We work on the budget, we pass ordinances. Um, but I would say the work of diversity, inclusion, equity uh, is expected of people of color, um, which is strange because there's not as many of us as there are white people. And it's very difficult at times for white people to recognize that they too have a race and their race figures into the kind of life that they get to lead. So at the end of 2018, early 2019, I proposed during a city council meeting that, or a, a work session it might've been, uh, that we work on a strategic plan for diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, for the city of Boise. And I worked on that for an entire year. Uh, mayor McLean was elected mayor. Um, she has some other ideas of what she would like to do uh, to encourage and expand that. Uh, but again, I joined the city council in, in January of 2018. Um, so I'm relatively new and none of that work began prior uh, to me arriving. And it's deep to the bone work. It's not pride flags, it's not parties, um, it's not surface. It requires a commitment of money, um, of will, and um, it's gonna be hard. Uh, you know, these are difficult conversations to have, but in training, is a safe place to have them because we don't want to inflict harm on each other as colleagues and we don't want to inflict harm on our community and we want it to be the lens through which we do all our work whether it's planning and zoning public works arts and history the boise police department the boise fire department all our departments we need to be looking through that diversity equity and inclusion lens i applaud those methods from city hall because i can illustrate the problem in a question why didn't people in general feel like there was some kind of access number whether it's city hall the state house the governor or the community liaison for the police to just pick up and call that person whose job it is specifically to deal with those issues they chose a person of color because essentially they didn't know where to go streamline it please and that brings up a really interesting point that i've i have heard from so many viewers kind of quietly saying there's not really a racism problem in Idaho, is there? This isn't an Idaho issue. And it, it's, it seems to be this discomfort with acknowledging that there is a racism problem in Idaho, like the Middleton School District issue that we saw a couple years ago, uh, like, like so many of these small um, 
news stories that pop up every once in a while. We do have a racial, a different racial makeup in Idaho than um, other cities and states in this country, but we do have so many people of color here, whether they are in indigenous communities or Latino communities or black people or refugee communities in Twin Falls and Boise. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you both about how this misconception that there's no racism here because we don't have a huge black population. And I'd start with you, Professor. Okay, <laughs> the answer to the question is, uh, it's a classic misconception. They're confusing racism with acts of hostility and newsworthy, newsworthy stories, okay? Confusing racism with acts of hostility, individual or group, and newsworthy stories. They're not looking at, for example, speak to a woman like Lisa Sanchez about her experience at Boise State, not just the hostile murder you saw on TV. How many bad experiences did she have that indicated racism? Uh, did she feel left out of things? Did she feel lack of support? Uh, go to the Multicultural Center at uh, Boise State University, speak to Roe Alvarado Parker or people like that, and listen to the students there and the stories they tell about their experiences, some of which are not very good. Uh, Talk to me about the newly formed, something I founded, the uh, Boise State University Black Faculty and Staff Association. And at our meetings, one of the thing that, things that comes up is a lot of very talented black professionals are leaving Boise State because they don't feel supported. That's not dramatic. It happens with uh, Latina and other professionals also. They don't feel supported. So essentially you have ultimately job discrimination. Check with people who are black and work at Boise State about how black students come up to them because they need help and ultimately end up being a liaison between the students and human resources on a variety of issues. Those aren't exciting stories, they're not fancy, they're not bloody or violent, and they don't make the news and they're not cute sound bites. So that's what's meant by systemic racism, long-term stuff, and we can see it in a lot of statistics. One example of Boise State is people of color who are great leaving uh, for a wide variety of reasons. So. Uh, racism is an attitude of superiority. And then there are acts of discrimination, which are the actions that take place. They're not always in the paper. So it becomes even more insidious. It's effectively invisible. And once again, it takes something that's visual sometimes, like a murder, to get people aware that we've got symptom there of many deep underlying issues. You know, um, that's about all the time we have. But briefly, Professor, could you give us uh, a description one more time of this new initiative that you are starting? Oh, yes. <laughs> I have formed the uh, Idaho Human Rights Collective. And uh, we have a team of advisors, uh, people of color, as well as uh, just people from the greater community who are involved in progress and civil rights. And our website is Idaho humanrightscollective.org. As I mentioned, my fundraiser took off yesterday and it's going to be supporting everything from blog entries to articles to workshops, the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. And you can look that up online. Hopefully people can dum donate or come out to some of the events that'll be uh, publicized on our site. All right. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I know you've been incredibly busy lately and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Melissa. Um, this has been a huge honor to be able to speak with you. I really admire your work. Thank you. Yeah, I always wanted to be on your show. So, hey, there, here I am. Here you go. Here <laughs> you go. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you.